Hello and welcome to the Amherst STEM Network podcast. My name is Charlie Buarm and I'm a junior majoring in chemistry. And I'm Nicole Chung, a junior majoring in chemistry and education studies. And we'll be your co-hosts for today's episode, where we'll cover how Amherst is bridging STEM and humanities with Professor Ted Melillo of Environmental Studies and History. We're here today with Professor Ted Melillo at Amherst College. I was hoping you could start by telling us a little bit about your position at Amherst. Yeah, so thanks for having me. I teach in the history and environmental studies departments at Amherst. I'm a professor, and uh, I've been teaching at Amherst since 2009, which is when I first got here. And before that, I taught at Franklin and Marshall College for a year in Pennsylvania. And before that, I taught for a year at Oberlin College in Ohio. And uh, so I've been around at Amherst for a while, and I really enjoy teaching and working here. You said you're in, in the environmental science and history department. It seems, it's like a weird combination for people who don't really know anything about environmental history. Yes, exactly. So I'm jointly appointed. I'm in both departments, as are many people in the environmental studies department. All of us, except for two now, are jointly appointed in other departments, so we have at least two homes. Although it's very exciting now that we've got Ashwin Ravikumar and Becky Hewitt, who is just arriving at Amherst College for the spring semester. She'll be teaching climate science. Those are the two first full appointees in environmental studies. So we're coming into our own as as a department with heft, um, but but we got our start from people who were interested in environmental studies coming to it from other fields. Although the thing that I do, which is called environmental history, is inherently interdisciplinary. So I've always felt at home in both the sciences and the humanities. And I guess you could also say the social sciences to a certain extent. Let's talk a bit about your current primary focus of research. What are you doing currently? What have you done in the past? Sure. So it may sound a little bit all over the place, but uh, there are some coherent themes that run throughout. My most recent book is called The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. And it's about the central role that insects have played in so many of the institutions that we think of as resolutely modern, from genetic science to the future of food to agribusiness to, in fact, many of the commodities that are in us, on us, and around us in our everyday lives. And I've long enjoyed studying the history and movement of commodities throughout the past, and that's animated my work from the very beginning. And I've also always done um, studies on the way humans have interacted with nature in the past. My first book is about the connections between Chile and California going back 222 years, but it also looks at the exchanges of commodities in world history and at the ways that humans and non-human nature interacted in both the distant past and the more recent past. So there's some themes that run through all my work. I tend to geographically work on what I call the Pacific world, which means the people, ecosystems, and cultures in and around the Pacific. And I was really fortunate and got to have a year in Hawaii learning to speak and read Hawaiian from 2017 to 2018. And as my hosts know, I will be teaching a colloquium called Islanders Abroad in the 19th century during the spring semester. And we'll be looking at Pacific Islanders who traveled in the 1800s to China, Japan, Europe, and the United States. And we're going to be putting their stories at the center of travel narratives Otherwise, you know, often in travel literature from the 19th century, Pacific Islanders are never thought about or talked about except as exotic others. And yet many of them were cosmopolitans going hither and thither. And so we're going to be tracking down their stories and building a website based on those histories. So uh, you spoke a little bit about before we started recording how you became involved in your field of study. Could you speak a little bit about your background? What inspired you to become involved with environmental history? So, I mean, it is in many ways in my DNA because my father is an ecologist. He's worked in Woods Hole, Massachusetts as the co-director of the Ecosystem Center at the Marine Biological Laboratory 
for many decades. And my mom is a history and English teacher. She was one of the founding teachers of a small school called Falmouth Academy. And so I grew up just feeling like and thinking that the humanities and sciences talked to each other at the dinner table. And I lucked out. I intertwined two limbs of the family tree and people gave me a career out of it. And ever since then, I've been pursuing this quirky but rapidly expanding field. Environmental history is probably the fastest growing branch of the historical discipline. And now you go to most universities and colleges and there'll be at least one person doing environmental history, if not more. And it's a well-established field today. People think of, you know, people like Jared Diamond or Charles Mann um, as prominent environmental historians who are reaching a much wider audience than just academia. But, oh, about 40, 45 years ago, it was a field that was unknown to many. Now, the early pioneers were just emerging, Alfred Crosby, Bill Cronin, Carolyn Merchant. And so it's a field that's really come into its own in the last half century. And I've been lucky enough to, I guess, to pursue the Hawaiian metaphor to surf this wave. So maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but I want to talk about that a little bit. So you, it's fairly new. So what, what do you think is causing it to come into light today? Is it, is it something in the global scale that's causing people to want to study environmental history? Yeah, certainly. I, I think the, the sort of presence of, of issues like global climate change and these notions like the Anthropocene, the idea that humans have become geologic agents in our own right, has put the study of environmental history front and center but more generally, I think since the 1960s and 70s, people have been looking for ways to kind of heal some of the fragmentation that's been seen in, in the rise of the modern disciplines. You know, the disciplines that organize our academic life are relatively recent. They're the product of, frankly, the late 19th century. And sometimes they make a lot of sense. I want my students to be trained in historical methods, and I want my environmental students to, to know their ecology. But now that we're dealing with problems that are increasingly complex, that span the scientific domain, the political domain, the social and cultural domain, the types of solutions that students need to be equipped and prepared to deal with and come up with are really demanding that we don't just exist in our disciplinary silos. We may have to think beyond these boundaries constantly to solve some of the problems the world's facing. So yes, I think one of the, the big drivers is, is the omnipresence of, of these, these global environmental issues that require more complex problem solving skills, but also it's the kind of attempt to heal some of the fragmentation of, of the breaking of knowledge into these discrete disciplines that don't always get us back to reality in, in useful or convenient ways. This is going a bit off um, book, but I couldn't help uh, thinking about this in relation to the colloquium. Um, I'm, and I'm wondering in this moment of like, I don't know, Western science and our modes of objectivity really feel like they're kind of at the, at the, um, at the, what's the, what's the expression at the stake? Like, I don't know, all these ideas about how we frame science just seem really under siege, especially in this moment of like trying to decolonize and um, anti-racism really coming to the forefront of science, especially at Amherst. So I'm wondering how the colloquium um, might explore like indigenous science and these kind of ideas that have long been cast as a dichotomy, right, of Eastern science, Western science science how does your work attempt to bridge those things or maybe I don't know if it does I'm just curious yeah great question and it's actually absolutely central to my work I'm also very involved in the Native American and Indigenous Studies group at the five colleges and one of the things I'm really interested in is traditional ecological knowledge and non-western cosmologies and systems of understanding nature and in many ways, they're extremely advanced and have much to contribute, not only as ways of, of coming to new understandings about the past, but also as these latent reservoirs of potential learning about how we might shape our future. 
um, in terms of sustainable management strategies, in terms of land use practices, in terms of the ways that people have interacted with oceans in the past. Because I also teach an oceans of the past course, and, and I'm very interested in seas and maritime history. And so I'm thinking about non-Western ways of, of knowing nature, and those are absolutely central to my work. And in fact, even in my book on insects, a lot of it is about these commodities, I talk about silk and shellac, and a third you may not know about is cochineal, which is the source of, of this scarlet red dye. And these are all produced by insects, and they've all been cultivated by traditional cultivators in ancient worlds for thousands of years, but they've also made a resurgence today. And it's indigenous peoples who are at the centerpiece of these commodities that are all around us in our everyday lives, but we don't acknowledge the systems of knowledge that are operating there. And as you're saying, that can be really relevant to conversations about decolonizing methodologies and, and uh, understanding race in new ways and thinking about colonialism and the environment. And those, those themes are woven in throughout my work. So that's sort of how I see it fitting into the colloquium, but, but generally, my, my work is really animated by, by wanting to come to better understandings of traditional ecological knowledge. You know, you were talking a bit about environmental history at Amherst and at other colleges, how it's an expanding, expanding community. Specific to Amherst, what does it look like? Are you the only person doing environmental history? How will the community expand in the near future? Yeah, so I'm I'm very fortunate because I'm not the only person here doing environmental history, which is a real luxury to be at a small liberal arts college and have colleagues and collaborators who span many disciplines. Uh, Rick Lopez in the history department also considers himself, he's also in environmental studies and, and YAS, and considers himself an environmental historian. And in fact, when I had just gotten the job, uh, I met up with Rick at the American Society for Environmental History, and we had a meal together and talked about what it would be like to teach at Amherst, and we were at the same professional conference because we both consider our work to be environmental history. And there were a lot of other people on campus who were doing things that, that intersect profoundly with the field of environmental history. Nicola Courtright teaches a number of essays that I also teach. She's in art history, but has co-taught a course with Rick thinking about nature. Hannah Holloman in environmental studies is also in sociology, but some of the work she does is very historically grounded. She's written a book on the Dust Bowl, in fact, and, and looks very much like environmental history, and she reads and thinks about that. So there are all sorts of areas in which people are doing work that intersects um, with this topic. Joe Moore does environmental philosophy, but but his work is very historically grounded as he's thinking um, about the problems that are at the center, environmental ethics of his concerns. So yeah, it's been it's been neat to see some this web of connections that's emerged on a fairly small campus um, to bring this field to the fore for students. You know, like you had mentioned before, this is a this is a great example of the merging of STEM and humanities. And that's a central theme. And, you know, one thing that at least I have a problem with at Amherst is the fact that a lot of hard sciences don't spend very much time talking about the people who discovered anything in the field or the um, background of, of where the science comes from, you know, that sort of thing. So what do you think hard sciences can learn from this interdisciplinary work that might be beneficial to students? Yeah, well, I think I think the moves are already happening and, and the signs are good. This idea of being human in STEM, this course that's that's going to be taught here is is a real um, progressive move in the right right direction to start thinking about these intersections and about intersectionality quite quite literally um, in the sciences and how important it is to be discussing topics like race and ethnicity and history alongside you know, looking at the sciences as some sort of pseudo-objective domain of study. We need to historicize these things and, and put them in their context to understand what kinds of thinking and assumptions have gone into their makings. I mean, you know, fundamentally, the most important thing I do as a historian is I take givens and turn them into contingencies. 
and I want to try to do that always with my students, to take basic assumptions and start to think about how did we get there. And, you know, growing up with a scientist dad, I know how important that is for constituting the scientific fields. And if it's not done consciously, it's a real oversight. Uh, and and I think we're, we're heading in good directions with this. More work certainly needs needs to be done. But but I think Amherst could, in fact, be a leader here. But it's, you know, it's through supporting fields like environmental studies where a lot of these conversations happen. I mean, my greatest aspiration is that my classrooms are a place where an English major won't run shrieking from the room when I talk about the nitrogen cycle and a biology major won't run shrieking from the room when I talk about culture. Um, and so, so I'm trying to create spaces for these types of conversations to occur. And I think the more we can do that, the, the better. So let's, let's talk about the current student community of environmental history at Amherst. What's it look like? How how can current students get involved if they want to get involved? And speaking to prospective students, how could they learn more about the program? Maybe how can they become involved as prospective students? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously trying out and taking courses in, in environmental studies is a great way because many of us do things that cross cross boundaries quite overtly. And Ashwin Ravikumar, who's one of our new professors full-time in environmental studies, does work on politics and political theory. His field work is is in the Peruvian Andes, working with indigenous groups and and um, and their interactions with their environments. And so, um, and there are other people in environmental studies who are doing these kind of boundary crossing things that give a lot of potential for exploring these new methods. Hannah Holman's um, courses are, are great for doing this. And I think Becky Hewitt, when she's teaching with us this coming semester, is also going to open up spaces for this. She, for example, has been working with indigenous communities in Alaska and their responses to climate change, in addition to doing hard kind of science field work that we might think of traditionally as, as part of the climate change scientist repertoire. She's doing work in the political sphere, thinking about you know, how these issues are, are constantly part of, of diplomacy and politics as well as part of the scientific realm. So, you know, I think that's the really important role that environmental studies plays here. Now, in terms of environmental history in particular, you know, there are certain course offerings that I would suggest to people. I have my courses and, and Rick Lopez's courses are there, but there are other courses that, that, that pop up along the way that explicitly do things related to environmental history. You know, Robert Hayashi teaches teaches writing in American studies, but he very much also considers himself a historically minded and an environmentally minded writer and 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 teaches things about um environmental writing that are very much in the wheelhouse of environmental history. And uh, many of the seminars in environmental studies, things that Kara Vigil and Lisa Brooks do, uh, they do a, a course on the history of corn where I've come in and, and given guest lectures. That's environmental history. So there's a lot of possibilities if you wanted to pursue this. And, you know, students should just come to me and we'll 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 talk about ideas for, for how to go forward. So what do you say? So so you you said that you 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 want science people and humanities people to feel comfortable in your courses. So what do you say to somebody who is like a hard science person and might be kind of scared to take something with more history or reading or writing? Because I was one of those I was one of those students, honestly, and, and and I took the jump. But what would you say to a student like that? I would say, you know, you're at Emerson College and this whole place is designed for you to take those kind of plunges. And, you know, I also maybe maybe plunge is the wrong word. You can dip your toe in and I try to create a comfortable space where where those um, those intersections are going to occur. I built it in. It's sort of baked in to the logic of the way I approach things. And, uh, you know, it's an open curriculum. And so experimentation is prioritized and, and encouraged. And and we try to create a lot of introductory courses at the college in general, and I do this in my own coursework in particular, where students coming from other areas and other types of training can feel comfortable moving into these new fields of inquiry for them. Now, that said, I'm not going to hesitate to push you as a writer and a thinker and a discussant, because I think those are the core skills you're going to leave here with. I mean, 
you know, unless you're in a few of the hard sciences or pre-med, there are very few fields where it actually matters what you majored in as an undergrad. That may leave some people feeling distraught. But, uh, you know, when you go out into the world beyond Amherst, people want to know if you can write, if you can think critically, if you can speak articulately about um, topics that are germane to your, your fields of interest. Those are the core skills that we want to teach. And you can get those skills in a lot of different ways. I also often suggest to my advisees to take courses based on faculty members, not just topics. You just want to try out different approaches. People are going to teach differently. And there's a lot of word on the street. It's a small place. So you can find out, you know, maybe you just want to take a course with somebody who's going to teach you really differently than the way you were taught last semester. And that's going to be useful because you see different ways of breaking up fields of knowledge, different ways of thinking about the crucial issues that shape the way we learn. And so I almost suggest, you know, go out there and try a variety of teaching approaches. Don't just take things based on, you know, the topics are going to be exciting because we all come up with great, great titles for our courses. But um, try out different professors here. And you have the luxury to be able to do that. We don't, there's not a lot of tracking. I mean, other than, you know, there are a few majors where you've got to follow through the series of steps of courses that you need to take to complete a major. But even those you know, we've had so many random combinations of double and triple majors. You can pull it off and take all sorts of different stuff. My next question kind of builds off of like a course looking really good on paper, but then not really knowing how it's going to play out could not be more uh, fitting for the remote semester. So just to kind of go there, what is the remote semester since March really looked like for you? And how has that affected your approach to teaching in, in your discipline? Yeah, I mean, it's profoundly altered everything for all of us, our pedagogies, our interactions with students, the way we cut up our time on a day-to-day -day and in a semester um, time frame is completely different. I mean, for example, last spring, I was teaching my Commodities, Nature, and Society seminar, and I had one student who had to go back to Singapore, and he was 12 hours ahead of us. So what we did is we did periodic discussions at 9.30 at night so that he could be waking up and eating his breakfast with us, but we wanted to include him in the discussions. And so that kind of retooling and then the sort of synchronous, asynchronous stuff. Some of us have kids at home and we've had to be recording some lectures so that we can, you know, supervise, in my case, a second grader who's getting online for his Zoom classes in the morning. Um, so it's been radical, but I will say the thing I'm most excited and proud about is the way the students have, you know, you all have really born with us and, and stuck it out. And it's taken a lot of adjustment, but for the most part, I think the quality of the discussions, the caliber of the discussions has been really high because people are just excited to learn and want to get as much out of this, no matter what the circumstances are as they can. And so I was teaching the environmental studies senior seminar this semester with Professor Ethan Tamelez, and the discussions were marvelous. They were just so on point and so enthralling and illuminating. And I think it's because students were really trying to extract as much value from whatever they could salvage from this semester as possible. And, you know, we never had a single absence in all of the sessions among the 14 students. And, that was great. You know, that's remarkable. And I guess to sort of like go even further and name the elephant in the room, how is COVID-19 and this entire pandemic kind of brought out like public health? Is like that's like one of the most interdisciplinary things, but Amherst doesn't specialize enough to ever do that. And I'm wondering how that has made its way into your classroom or not, if you don't really include it in any of the units or anything. But I know a lot of humanities classes in particular have tried to adapt and put that in in their courses to some degree so I'm curious yeah and and I, I will say you know I haven't really because we designed the environmental studies senior seminar it was actually really exciting what we did we basically last summer decided that what we wanted to do was to make this a capstone event for our seniors and get a kind of star-studded cast of characters from across the field to come in and speak with us. So one of the big impacts of COVID was we can get all these people on Zoom that we wouldn't have been able to get in 
person if we had to fly them in, put them up in a hotel. So we had Betsy Colbert, who's the Pulitzer Prize winner, um, winning author of The Sixth Extinction. And, you know, Charles Mann came in 1493, 1491 and met with our students. And uh, my dad came in and spoke to our students and Susan Hassel, who's a climate change communications expert and Joe Moore presented to us and Peter Batusik, one of the leading um, biodiversity ecologists who's at Stanford came in. And so what we did is we tried to transform the kind of COVID limitations into potential where we took a bad situation and said, okay, so where are the small silver linings in these dark clouds? And one of them is that you can get hold of a lot of people. But in terms of teaching about the pandemic, I think that's going on more and more too. I mean, there's several courses happening this spring one of them in environmental studies, I believe it's Professor Holliman teaching an actual course on the pandemic. And that's starting to get pretty well covered. And certainly in our colloquium, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be thinking about and talking about the ways that limits our access to archives and the ways that shaped conversations about cultural patrimony and people's access to, um, to archives to do genealogical work, for example. Um, a lot of Pacific Islanders depend on traveling among islands to reconnect with family. And that's going to be a topic that comes up as we talk about Pacific Islanders movements um, in, in the world. And I think, you know, for all of us, we're thinking in new ways about how to conduct our research and live our lives in these radically circumscribed circumstances. I mean, I was planning last summer to go to Hawaii and work with my language tutor and do archival work at the Bishop Museum. And my plane tickets were scheduled for May 24th. And by March, I knew that I'd have to cancel that trip. And, and it's totally shaped my research agenda. And that, of course, bleeds into my teaching because I'm talking a lot with my students about what I work on to give them a firsthand, you know, a taste of of, of what I do as a scholar and a thinker. Um, so, yeah, it's it's affecting every aspect of life in ways that, that show up in the classroom and all sorts of different permutations. I want to kind of ask you what you think remote learning will, will what kind of effect will it have on future generations of students? What positive effects and what negative effects do you think it might have? Because I, I personally, I think that um, there's a lot to learn from remote learning and there's some things that are working really well and things that aren't working very well and, and we can build off of that. Yeah, I'll be I'll be really curious post COVID, and it's fortunate we know that there will be a post COVID. Having that horizon there matters a lot. But I'll be really curious to see what we retain from all this and what we what we forego. I think some of the things are virtuous. You know, the carbon footprint of doing long distance book talks where I'm not flying all over the place. You know, I, I published a book which came out in August. And I've done about 24 book talks since then. And if I was flying to, to Cleveland, Ohio, or to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to give these talks, you know, it's a huge carbon footprint. Um, and, and I've been able to access audiences, in fact, often in the privacy of their own homes by, by Zoom and, and reach out to people in ways that I didn't even know what Zoom was before last spring. And I think many of us now exist to our detriment in some ways on Zoom for much of our day. Um, so some of the virtues are just simply accessibility. There's a democratization to it, certainly, where where you can travel into people's homes. You know, there's a carbon footprint to Zoom, but it's minuscule in comparison to getting on a jet airplane and flying somewhere. Um, and pedagogically, it's allowed some things to happen. I mean, the sort of share screen format where where students can present quite easily on this terrain opens up new ways of, of organizing the classroom. And um, and I think that's been neat and I've tried to play around with that and I'll continue to do that this spring. In terms of negative effects though, some of them for an Amherst College student are obvious. Running into people on campus is one of my favorite things. I run into my students and colleagues all the time, and we have spontaneous conversations on the way to Val, at Amherst Coffee. I go to lunch with my colleagues all the time, and that's the way a lot of the business of the college gets done. You know, that's one of the virtues of a small college, and maybe a drawback sometimes, too, is that word of mouth 
rules the day. And the way word of mouth operates over Zoom and email is fundamentally different than when you're just walking along with someone you ran into and having that spontaneous conversation. I mean, I run into my students all the time in Frost. And those are such important moments because that's when I say, oh, by the way, do you know about the lecture that's happening tomorrow night? Or they say to me, oh, hey, I just found this really cool book that you might not know about and check it out. Um, and, and I miss that. You know, I miss that a lot. Amherst Coffee is, is certainly a hub, partly because, you know, I need the caffeine, but also because I'm there to meet people and see people. And I, I do feel that that's been a real loss. Um, you know, it is also nice to just be able to, speaking of coffee, run and make a cup of coffee whenever I want just before I get onto a meeting. And, and I certainly organize my life differently under this, this regime of interacting. But um, the other thing that's lost is just in-person office hours and in-person teaching are going to be way better for, for in many respects. You know, students coming into my office and just talking about stuff, um, and having that in-person interaction in the classroom is where it's at. I've been at big institutions. I was a grad student at Yale. And I think the virtue of being at a small institution for your undergrad is that you're just interacting with, with, with your professors a whole lot more. And I miss that, too. Um, so, you know, there, there are positives and negatives. And I think we're going to come out of this pondering pretty conscientiously what we want to retain and then what things will be relieved to look back on as as the things we left behind. I'm just thinking like all of us, mo most of us, I think, have been forced to engage more with nature as a result of the pandemic. And outdoors is really the only like safe thing we can do or kind of sometimes the only thing we can do. How, as an environmental historian, do you think that like this moment will be recorded like as a like a testament to our humanity's relationship with nature? Like, do you think you see like a different, I don't know, collective experience of nature coming out of this year, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I hope that it expands our imagination about the possible because it's in a lot of places, in a lot of ways, it's given nature a break from the relentless onslaught of modernity. You know, these, these polluting technologies, many countries were not on target to meet Paris Accords goals and, you know, of course, the United States was so off target because of withdrawing from the Paris Accords that we, we hope will be reversed shortly. So this break that nature got allows us to, you know, I have friends in L.A. who were saying, I'm hearing birds chirping for the first time. I can actually see, you know, the the horizon <laughs> at a great distance for the first time. And, you know, the, the Venice Lagoon was finally uh, clear of, of oil slick and pollution for the first time in decades. And there, there are a number of places the skyline in Beijing was visible for several days in succession, which, you know, I've been in Beijing twice and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's intense and awful. And, and so these breaks that nature got are also moments when the human imagination gets to expand. What would it be like if we actually took concerted action to make these more permanent changes? In some of these situations, I'm pretty pessimistic that we'll just go back to normal. Um, but then in other ways, I'm really excited about the fact that, you know, I've been doing a lot of hiking with my son and we've also been raising silkworms at home. It's a great pandemic activity to do with your kids, especially if you're interested in insects that won't bite or nibble on fingers. And we probably wouldn't have done that if we weren't hunkered down at home looking for exciting projects that actually do connect us to nature in fascinating ways. And we've watched these little, little insects grow from what look like sort of peppercorns to now they're three inches long and they're spinning their cocoons uh, in the glass terrarium we put them in. And it's been really exciting to have all this time to be attentive to these things. And in my work in general, I'm trying to approach um, heightening and attentiveness to nature. And so I think this has been a moment when tons of people have been maybe too many going to national parks and hiking and camping. And we've been doing that. And, and that's great. You know, that's wonderful. And I hope that gets retained after the pandemic um, and this kind of expansion of the imagination. I think if, if political movements can then take that energy and say, 
oh, do you remember when you could see the skyline and you could hear the birds chirping? What would it be like to to take concerted political action to make that much more permanent? And what would that take? I'm seeing some of that, the Sunrise Movement and 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 student groups especially are taking that bull by the horns. And I think that's exciting. I wanted to back up actually, this is this will this will this is a weird segue, but I want to talk about your book. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about it? How long have you been working on it? What's the what's the central theme? You know, what what do you want people to take away? Sure, sure. So the book, I think, as we mentioned before, is called The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. And Penguin Random House published it this past August. And I've been giving giving a lot of book talks and reaching a lot of audiences that have been both excited and a bit shocked to hear what I have to say about how omnipresent and ubiquitous insects are in our daily lives. Uh, the book unfolds in two parts. The first half of the book is about three commodities in world history, shellac, silk, and something called cochineal, all three of which are the secretions of insect bodies that are in, on, and around us all the time. Cochineal is the source of, of this carmine red dye that was prized by Europe's rulers to make ecclesiastical vestments and royal robes. But as it turns out, it's in everything you're eating today, from Dan and uh, strawberry on the bottom yogurt to um, Campari and fake crab legs at the sushi restaurant. And uh, shellac, you may know, um, from painting your back deck, but it's also in nail polish and hairspray, and it's on a lot of fruits in the grocery store to keep them shiny. And then, of course, silk is the third of these insect commodities I talk about. And who hasn't touched silk in the form of a silk dress, a silk necktie, silk underwear? Um, and the second half of the book then looks at things that I call the hives of modernity, genetic science, agribusinesses, and the future of food, and I try to show the central importance of insects to the maintenance and success of all of these things. Uh, most of our knowledge of the human genome is actually derived from studies on uh, Drosophila melanogaster, which is the common fruit fly. Um, much of our food is totally dependent on pollinators, many of which are insects, one in every three bites of food that the average person on the planet takes on a daily basis was pollinated by an insect, in fact. And then in terms of the future of food, a lot of us are probably going to be eating insects and already are, whether we know it or not. I'll tell you just a funny Amherst-related story about this. I was teaching my global environmental history of the 20th century course one morning. I had um, some 90 students enrolled in it. It was in a big lecture hall, and three of my students walked in. They were football players who'd been doing their morning weight lift, and they came in munching on protein bars. And I looked down at the wrapper of the bars they were eating, and it said Exobar. And I said, hey, guys, do you know you're eating insects? <laughs> and they gave quizzical looks to the food they were munching on. And Exo stands for Exoskeleton. It's a company that was started by two Brown University graduates, and it uses cricket meal for the flour. It's high-protein flour. And um, this is kind of the wave of the future. We're going to have a planet with 9 billion people on it by 2050, or so the UN says, and they're not going to be eating steaks. Um, it's just incredibly environmentally expensive to make a pound of steak in the U.S. It's 2,000 gallons of water and two acres of grazing land. Um, to make cricket meal, it's about two gallons of water and two cubic feet of space for the exact same pound of, of, of high-protein product. And the cricket meal actually has three times the amount of protein, more iron and nutrients. Um, and so everyone's betting on this from Bill Gates to – the Twitter co-founders to Mark Cuban of Shark Tank fame. Um, they're putting their money that we'll be eating a lot more cricket meal in the future. So the book just goes into sort of an exploration of all these things. And, and in the end, I talk about listening to insects and the need to be more literally attentive to what they're telling us, um, but also figuratively what insects are, are having to say about the health of our planet. Um, so it was a fun book to write. I've been working on it for a few years, and it really sprang out of childhood interests uh, and, and then grew into something where, hey, I thought I can write a book on this, and I had to learn a lot to write the book in the end, but it was all such a joy. 
This reminds me of the relationship between vanilla and castorium, which is like from beaver butts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Castor oil. Yeah. People that's, don't like to know where things come from. That's <laughs> so fascinating. It's, pretty, it's pretty revolutionary in that sense. <laughs> and the funny thing when I give talks about the book that people don't know is that we're all eating insects all the time. In fact, you know, I'm sitting here sipping a cup of coffee the FDA allows 10% of the imported green coffee beans to the United States to be insect body parts. And insect parts are in chocolate and peanut butter. And and when you go into a grocery store, just look around you, any of the shiny fruits, they're all coated in shellac. Cochineal, as I said, is the red dye in everything. And one of the things I, I discuss in the book is why. You know, after the Second World War, everyone was talking about the, the synthetic age and how laboratory-produced products would replace natural products. But one of the things that happened in the 1970s is, is the rise of the field of environmental toxicology. And people learned that many of these laboratory-generated synthetic substitutes were harmful to the human body. Or, in the case of silk, they were simply structurally inadequate. Uh, insects have a big big head start on us. They've been around on Earth for 480 million years, and the latest evidence about the earliest Homo sapiens is about 300,000 years in Morocco. They found the earliest uh, Homo sapien fossils. So, you know, they've got a huge head start, and they've managed to use that to their advantage. And here we are returning to these putatively natural products in the 21st century for these fundamental dependencies. Um, you know, one of the really interesting things was when I did the shellac research, 78 RPM records, the, the medium for the global transmission of sound up until the 1940s and the vinyl age was all done with records made out of shellac, which is the secretion of the Karyalaka bug raised by millions of men and women in India and Southeast Asia. And so, you know, writing the book was just a one string after another of surprises and revelations for me. Actually, I remember uh, you're talking about that red dye. I, this was like, oh, I don't know, probably seven years now. Like Starbucks had a uh, some red strawberry drink or something like that, and then people found out the the dye was coming from bugs, and everybody was freaking out on the internet about it. Yeah, and um, Gino. Yeah, that exactly that. And um, I remember learning about that, and 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 I guess um, now one thing I'm thinking about that you were just talking about a little bit was this is. This is this, this that wouldn't happen in in not the Western world is like different, right? The the way we perceive where we get our food and what we're eating, like I guess we we perceive eating bugs and 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 getting things from insects to be bad or maybe a, a roast or something like that. So why why is it such a different occurrence in in the Western world? Sure, yeah, yeah, and, and great question. About two billion people on the planet eat insects as a regular part of their daily diets. And insects are, frankly, centerpiece dishes in many national um, and, and regional cuisines throughout the world. And I've, I've sampled and eaten a bunch of them. One of my favorites are chapulines in southern Mexico. Uh, they're grasshoppers that are fried up on a comal with, with chiles and lime. And they taste sort of like a really flavorful, crunchy tortilla chip. Um, but in, in the West, in, in Europe and in North America, We've had an antipathy towards this, you know, and it's got historical roots in part. Most of the people who were the colonizers here were from cold northern European climates where there weren't a lot of insects available to them. Um, but many native cultures throughout the world, including in the Americas, had insects and have still today insects as centerpieces of their cuisines and in Japanese food, in Chinese food, throughout Latin America, throughout much of Africa, even throughout the Mediterranean, insects are so common in food and they're not remarked upon as sort of a separate category of, you know, now I'm eating insects. But it's, it's all really very much culturally conditioned. I mean, just to give you an example, often, you know, I've taught many Chinese students because I've traveled a lot in China and started my graduate career in Chinese history and tend to attract a lot of Chinese students to my courses, they always say to me, you know, when I first arrived in the United States, one of the strangest things I ever came across was cereal with milk. What an absolutely bizarre idea, you know, this taste combination and to combine those things in the first place. And it just goes to show that a lot of, you know, our habits are so deeply learned and culturally conditioned. 
And, you know, there are the preliminary signs that, that many Europeans and North Americans are overcoming some of these inhibitions. For example, I talk in the book about how at Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, uh, they've served several hundred thousand servings of Chapolinas, these, these, these fried grasshoppers, and they seem to be getting a position in the ballpark menu alongside frankfurters and hot dogs and peanuts. It'll take it'll take a while, but it, it's happening. And, you know, with with cricket meal, it's certainly become normalized. If you go on Amazon, you can find I haven't even counted, but hundreds of products in which I mean, it's basically freeze dried pulverized crickets that have been added to everything from pasta to brownie mix to, you know, um, you can find pancake mix, anything um, with cricket meal in it. And so it's sort of hiding out in those cases. You're not munching on mandibles and four wings, but we're all eating this stuff, whether we like it or not. It's totally a conditioned fear because you think about it and all kids really start out in the dirt, like with worms that I play with salamanders as a kid. And then some point in time, I stopped doing that and started being scared and asking my dad to deal with the spider in my room. Where did that come from? That's so interesting. That's very true. <laughs> you know, Hollywood has certainly played a role in popular culture. Oh, but yeah. The big bug movies of the 1950s, <laughs> which continue into the 21st century, the kind of evil arthropod is a stock figure. And when Hollywood does deal with bugs, you know, um, it tends to humanize them to make them into good characters, you know, by, by putting them, you know, think of Jiminy Cricket and then go onwards way up in, into, you know, the other creatures you see in Hollywood. They're, they're standing up on two legs. They've gotten rid of the spiky exoskeleton, even dropping the antenna and the compound eyes. And at that point, you know, they're bipeds that have very little resemblance to any of their their true insect cousins. And so when Hollywood does frame insects as good guys or good gals, they tend to be humanized. And when they're evil, they tend to be, um, they tend to look much more like actual insects. And so, you know, there's a lot of cultural conditioning. And once it's been through the spin cycle, then that creates many of these antipathies. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to undersell the awful things that insects have done in human history from, you know, malaria and Zika and yellow fever and dengue to, you know, everything from Lyme disease and lice. But what I was out here out to do in this book was to look at the other side of the story that's gotten far less ink spilled in that direction. Um, Cause there's some great books about all the awful things that insects have done to humans in the past, but very little pointing out, you know, how much dependency there is here. I mean, we're, we're living on an insect planet. There are 10 quintillion insects on the planet right now. And we're kind of these guest visitors. The planet depends far more on insects for everything from plant sex to decay than it does on us. Destigmatize insects. <laughs> That's the hope. Now, now you mentioned how Hollywood makes evil, evil things look like insects, and I was just thinking about Alien and how like the the alien actually kind of looks like a like a like a bug. Yeah, it's actually super interesting what we may in the West consider exotic versus what some indigenous cultures might consider to not be exotic. And, and you even spoke about what those communities might consider to be exotic that we find pretty not exotic. I think the book will touch upon that, right? Quite extensively, actually. And the, the example you brought up, I even talk about in the book Alien, you know, the alien was inspired, and I, I, I quote the screenwriters, by a parasitic wasp. I mean, that's, that's where they began to create the whole character. And, and you know, the evil arthropod stock figure is really, really a product of a particular moment in, in quite a distinct cultural space. And I want to get that across that, you know, throughout much of the world, insects as pets are normal. Um, and, and even at the end, I talk about listening to insects quite literally, where um, during the Edo period in Japanese history, couples would go up to Dokan Hill in Tokyo, and they'd sit on picnic blankets, sip sake, and listen to the crickets and grasshoppers. Insect concerts, in fact, have been normal in many cultures in world history. I give examples from ancient Greece and Brazil and um, so, you know, it's kind of a call to maybe pay attention to these other aspects of our interaction with our non-human cousins that have been that have been lost in the dominant portrayals of them in mainstream culture. How can prospective students reach the environmental history department at Amherst and and uh, maybe even 
not just specifically students, but how can other people become involved or understand what's going on at Amherst or getting involved in understanding what is going on in the environmental history in general, like around the around the world? How can you recommend people and students understand more about this interdisciplinary? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I, I really welcome students into environmental studies. We've made it an extremely flexible major um, that 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 is open to any and all comers, and we want that diversity of of backgrounds, um, both you know both of the students themselves and of the fields they want to study. And and students can reach out directly to me if they want to know more about environmental history in particular. You know, and there's everything from now there's scholarly journals and societies, but there's also a lot of stuff that's really accessible to the general public. Now environmental history has taken its place on bookshelves and libraries and in, you know, the, the brick and mortar bookstores that still exist in the era of Amazon. You can find that stuff there and it now is existing as its own thing and seems to be okay and doing well as environmental history. And, you know, I mentioned Charles Mann already, who's an Amherst graduate and is an extremely prominent environmental historian whose work um, is, you know, has been translated into dozens of languages and has been internationally recognized. And so, you know, I, I think if, if students want to talk more about this, just reach out to me, try out an environmental studies course. But, but um, we're all fairly transparent here. So, so if anyone wants to talk more about this, I am more than happy to do that. And, and then you'll just see this stuff coming up in a lot of course descriptions, you know, and they're, the, the things are linked. If you go to environmental studies, we have a list of many of the related courses that aren't necessarily the core courses that you need for the major, but you also have to take related courses. And we've watched that expand over the years as more and more people, ranging from Nicola Courtright in art history to David Delaney and LJST to Robert Hayashi in American studies and English, are doing stuff that is part of this big environmental conversation and looks a lot like the environmental humanities. So. Great. And just a brief follow-up to that. How can prospective students reach out to you? Just, just email me. I mean, you can go on the Amherst website and look me up. I'm the only Melillo on campus. Uh, and it means little apple in Italian. So it's appropriate that I've got a connection to the, the botanical world and the food studies world, which I love to teach about. So just look me up drop me an email, reach out, uh, and, and we'll talk. Thank you for tuning in to our conversation today, and we hope you seek new ways to bridge STEM and humanities in your life, perhaps by picking up a copy of The Butterfly Effect. Stay curious, stay informed, and stay tuned for more.